we kind of go through phases um, as a society where we swing between the two poles of worrying about how much energy our buildings are using and worrying about um, uh, what's floating around our indoor environments, really. And they're, they're kind of diametrically opposed. Um, of course, you can crank up the ventilation as much as you want. You can do a lot of air cleaning, um, but you have to pay for that. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where in just about 30 minutes per week, we uncover the future of building and remodeling. Join us as we explore an industry that is constantly evolving with new products, new practices, and new technologies. From builders to remodelers to executives, as well as those with outside perspectives too, each episode of Construction Disruption we are, our goal is to meet with forward thinkers who will share their unique insights. Construction Disruption is sponsored and created by Isaiah Industries, a manufacturer of unique metal roofing systems and other building materials. Uh, I'm Todd Miller with Isaiah Industries, and today our co-host is Seth Heckeman, our sales manager, and our producer here behind the scenes is Ryan Bell. Um, Seth, how's your day going? Going well, Todd. Thanks so much for uh, connecting with and inviting Dr. Jordan Clark, our guest here today for our conversation. Really looking forward to it. Um, most episodes, you start off kicking me a question. So I thought we'd turn the tables and ask you one here to, uh, here to begin. Uh, so a question I came up with was over your 40 years in the industry, you know, we're really developing this podcast out of a response of over your career, seeing our industry construction as a whole being pretty slow to adopt change, slow to innovate, uh, slow to p push for advancements. Why do you think that is? And how do you see that changing moving forward? Oh, my goodness. You couldn't give the old man a softball question, could you? Okay. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. As I look back at change and, and development I have seen in construction over the years, um, a lot of it that I have seen, at least, and I'm sure this varies from segment of the industry to segment of the industry, but a lot of it has actually come from military and aerospace technology um, that has then been adapted for private use and, and commercialization. Um, for some reason, that doesn't, we don't seem to be seeing that kind of things come out of military and aerospace and, and making their way into construction the way that we once did. I, maybe I'm just not enough in the know to see it, but I don't feel like I am. Um, but, you know, I, I think what really is going to drive significant change is, you know, the sharp young minds that are out there today, such as, as you and, and so many others and, and our guests today and other guests that we're having, I, I think, you know, what's happening is we get a lot of sharp young minds out there looking and saying, okay, what areas of our world haven't been changing much? And what are the things going on today that could drive change? So, of course, you know, today we're, we're dealing with things like um, increasing amounts of extreme weather. We're dealing with the whole um, quest for renewable energy, the quest for energy efficiency. Um, I mean, even just here in the last year, now we're dealing with people simply staying at home a lot more too and people working from home. So that's kind of changing 
our approach to buildings and and you know the the structures that we live and the structures that we work in um the whole labor shortage out there i think is going to continue to drive the need for change you're always going to have design trends um you know our, our country is looking more and more at at our raw material resources and realizing that we don't necessarily have endless supplies of everything out there. And so that's becoming a bit of a question. Um, I think another thing I'm seeing a lot that I think is, you know, those bright young minds out there who are striving for, you know, these real changes in our industry um, is the chemical red list that, you know, we hear a lot about. And these chemicals that coming up down the road, we're going to see increasing amounts of regulation on using those chemicals. So um, that's going to force us also, I think, to look for change. Um, and, and of course, you know, we've got um, our guests today and, and so many great universities and building science departments across the country. They're doing lots of research. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more commercialization of their ideas as well. So I, I guess my point is that I think maybe those change in development um, impetuses and those those creative ideas may come from different places going forward than where I maybe saw them over the last 30 years coming from. Um, but I, I still think they're going to come. There's enough driving factors out there that are going to make um, it economically viable for people to reach for new things. And, you know, of course, everyone, whenever anyone comes with good ideas, then they got to figure out the way, you know, can they get it funded? Can they be able to, to carry it off and uh, create something that's scalable and, and uh, sustainable? But, uh, you know, that's certainly the challenge with any business and any idea. So that's my answer. Very good. Thank you. So I want to segue into our guest today on construction disruption is Dr. Jordan Clark. Um, as we look at the future of construction, I think it's really important for us to talk about what's going on in terms of building science research at leading universities. Um, we chose Dr. Clark as our guest today. Um, well, partly because he does hail from our great state, and, and he uh, is from the Ohio State University. Um, but I also love the fact that he sort of leads the way in a couple of subjects that I know I personally have come to care a lot about uh, during my time in the industry, and those are cons uh, sustainability and also the health of the buildings that we live and work in. So how do we make sure that the buildings we live and work in are going to last? And also, how do we make sure that they're not going to make us sick with unhealthy air or, or other dangerous environments? So Dr. Clark um, received his Ph.D. in civil architectural and environmental engineering and also a master's in architectural engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, uh, where he was a member of the Building Energy and Environments Research Group. He has bachelor's degrees in civil engineering and philosophy from Stevens Institute of Technology. And before starting at Ohio State University, Dr. Clark held appointments um, at both the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Um, Dr. Clark holds a dual appointment in the College of Engineering at Ohio State. He has a majority appointment in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Geodetic um, Engineering and a minority appointment in the construction 
Construction Services Management Program. Um, he's also a core faculty of the Sustainability Institute at Ohio State, which is an interdisciplinary collaboration aimed at answering the challenges of a quickly changing world. And he his uh, PhD, uh, or he has PhD advising status in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and the Environmental Sciences graduate program. So there's no one better than our guest today to, to speak at what's going on out there um, with those that are up and coming uh, in our industry. So certainly a very impressive pedigree, uh, Dr. Clark. Again, thank you very much for joining us today. We sure appreciate your time. And I know that our listeners are going to enjoy your insight into the leading edge of building science. Um, I'm kind of curious, um, what fueled your interest in this field? Were there particular life experiences maybe you had growing up, but what made you really care and become passionate about construction and, and building science? Yeah, so I actually started out life right, right after undergrad as a structural engineer. I was working in Manhattan um, on underground tunnels, um, sizing rebar for the most part. Wow. Most of the day. Um, and that was great, but um, I, I sensed that as we all did that there was going to be a big revolution in the kind of in the energy world. Um, it was just time, and everybody was investing a lot of en energy, a lot of no pun intended, and <laughs> investing a lot of uh, money into um, kind of solving this climate problem. And I, I kind of wanted to be part of it. And um, I looked around like, like, what can I do? I'm a structural engineer here. I kind of want to transition a little bit. I knew a little bit about how buildings came together and, you know, read a lot about building energy efficiency being, you know, the low hanging fruit, really. This is where we can uh, make the biggest change before, you know, finding a different way to generate power. If we just figure out, figure out a way to kind of uh, reduce the amount of energy that we need, that's the easiest way to kind of attack things in the near future, at least. Right. Um, so I, I went back to grad school, <clears throat> went back to grad school at the University of Texas. Um, to do that, luckily, I, I got into that program. It was top one or two in the country at the time that the architectural engineering program at Texas. Um, and the rest is history. Yeah, I got to be 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 part of this this big change that's going on in our country and across the world right now. Wow, good stuff. Um, I know you look a lot and have worked a lot with indoor air quality. Um, what are the things that have made that more of a concern in the past or driven that to be more at the forefront of thought and concern than it used to be? I mean, we didn't even think about it when I was growing up. So, Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I just gave a talk on this about a month ago. I think you may have, may have heard that, actually, where we, we kind of go through phases um, as a society where we – swing between the two poles of worrying about how much energy our buildings are using and worrying about um, uh, what's floating around our indoor environments really. And they're kind of diametrically opposed. Um, of course, you can crank up the ventilation as much as you want. You can do a lot of air cleaning, um, but you have to pay for that, right? You mm -hmm. have to pay for the conditioning of the air that you bring in. You have to dehumidify it, cool it down in the summertime. In the wintertime, you have to heat it back up so it's comfortable. Um, so depending on what we're worried about at the time, um, um, we've changed the ventilation rates that are required in mostly in commercial buildings we're talking about right now over time. So for example, um, we had a bit of an energy crisis in the seventies, ventilation rates required by, by law went way down. 
And then in the 80s, of course, what happened, we had this big rash of sick building syndrome um, in our commercial buildings. And we said, uh, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but we better crank those ventilation rates back up. Um, and then it switched back a little, little bit, again, with the uh, big investment um, beginning in 90s, 2000s, where we're starting to worry about energy again. So we're starting to maybe not turn our ventilation rates all the way down, but think about better ways of controlling indoor air quality. And then the pandemic happened, right? So now everybody's thinking about what's floating around their, their um, air in their, in their homes and in their um, offices. So those are the kind of things that kind of motivate um, societies to kind of, you know, move one way or another with regards to the, the energy indoor air quality spectrum, you might say. Wow, that's pretty neat. I never really thought about how those sort of things can create those trends and, and those ongoing changes. Yeah, it's that pendulum swinging principle that we see so often in so many different things. But I'm curious, back in the 80s when there is, you know, it got on everyone's radar indoor air quality post first energy crisis, pre second energy, you know, focus. 80s, you said that, you know, uh, we were realizing our buildings were unhealthy. Can you go a little bit more into what the symptoms were, what, how that got on our radar then? Sure. So this phenomenon of sick building syndrome, it's still not very well understood, but we do, do know that it's correlated to the ventilation rate per person. So if you turn down ventilation rate, um, consistently these things start showing up. Um, fatigue, um, upper respiratory symptoms, um, absenteeism among um, students and among uh, uh, workers. People are calling out sick more often. Um, a decrease in productivity um, by the same workers. And, and there's even some evidence for some mental health issues. Um, and the exact mechanistic understanding is still not developed, but we do know that it's strongly correlated to the ventilation rate. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm glad people were thinking about those things or starting to come aware of in the 80s. I was mainly thinking about how to grow my mullet, but, you know, that was, <laughs> that was just my deal back then. So as you look at, you know, things that are, are being done different to address air quality in buildings, um, is there anything that you think is going to be standard parts of construction in the future that, you know, we're maybe are just now starting to think about? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, state of California two years ago um, made sweeping changes in their, their building codes. As of last year, the, the worst home that you could build in the state of California only used as much energy as you could produce on the roof. So it's net zero ready. Right. Right. That's a huge change. Right. right. Um, so we're talking about things like air sealing, better insulation, um, uh, state of the art equipment, of course. But that, that that's a sea change. I mean, if we're mandating net zero buildings, which is easier to do in California, of course, because of the climate and things. But that might very well find its way into the, the interior of the country in, in, in the near future. Um, Interesting. So that's one thing. Um as far as the indoor air quality problem, dedicated ventilation has actually been required by the, the ASHRAE standard, if you're familiar with that, the um, American Society of Heating and Refrigeration Air Conditioning Engineers sure. creates a ventilation standard, air quality control standard that's adopted by a lot of municipalities, either in whole or part of it's adopted 
but they've actually required dedicated ventilation systems in residences um, for more than 10 years. Um, a lot of municipalities have not yet adopted that, but I think you will see that, especially after COVID and everything, people are thinking about indoor air quality more. So that'll be a big change because the vast majority of our, our homes, um, especially if they're not kind of high end, you, you're, you're well aware, don't have any dedicated uh, ventilation system at all. Just rely on infiltration, kind of accidental air exchange between indoor and outdoor environments. And if we're, uh, in order to get to the, the, the energy goals, we need to tighten these up so there isn't as much infiltration. We're not conditioning air that's just then leaking into our backyard. And if we do that, of course, we have to provide some kind of um, smarter um, um, ventilation that, that we control. So the, the mantra is build tight and then ventilate, right? So we're controlling uh, what goes in and out of our, our building. So those are some big changes that I think um, we'll see in the near future. Interesting. You mentioned in passing that uh, meeting some of these energy goals are a lot easier in some climates than others. Do you think the technology is here uh, and ready for middle America to be meeting those same energy standards that California has been pushing? Oh, so I don't think it was, it's just a matter of what technologies are um, better suited to different climates. Um, so I've talked with a lot of people about this. Ohio happens to be in a place where, except for the northwest um, corner, we have very poor wind resource. Um, it's not like West Texas or Wyoming where the wind's blowing hard all the time. So the economics of building wind power generation are not very good here. Um, the, at the times when we need energy the most, which is the winter time when we have the big uh, thermal loads from you know cold weather, um, the sun doesn't happen to shine very much, right? Mm-hmm. If you've been through a, a central Ohio um, winter, you know, it, it's kind of gray for, for quite a while during the winter. So solar power doesn't make a whole lot of sense here either. So what are we going to do in places like this? And, and a lot of people live here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we just wrote this proposal about PGM service territory, uh, PGM interconnect, kind of the, the grid um, for Let's see, what is it? Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Ohio, parts of Indiana. Uh, I think it reaches to Chicago, actually. But about one in five or one in six people live there. And they have similar climates in the United States. And they have similar climates to um, what we have here. So, you know, California can solve the problem, uh, the energy problem fairly easily because they got the sun shining all the time. What do we do in our region? Um, there are some things that make a lot of sense here. Um, combined heat and power makes a lot of sense. So we have abundant natural gas that is going to be around for a while. Um, we might as well use that to the greatest effect that that it can be used. So combined heat and power is something where we're um, kind of capturing the heat that would otherwise be expelled from power generation and using it to heat our buildings. Um, better insulation in tighter buildings make a lot of sense here. Um, Ohio is kind of the northernmost part of the country where um, heat pumps, electric heat pumps, make sense. They're kind of on the border for the, the economic case for, for doing that. But there are technologies that, that, um, that, that work here. It's just a different mix from, from other parts of the country, I'd say. Interesting. You, you mentioned natural gas it, with abundant kind of lo- at least a relatively long-term option. Is that with fracking? Is that without fracking? And how, you know, this is another pendulum or another balancing multiple things together, I imagine. Yeah. 
So, I mean, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, we're still getting something like 1% or 2% of our energy from renewable sources. Um, there's large parts of the country where the power generation that's coming online is largely renewable because it makes sense there. We're talking, you know, West Texas, California, places like that. But there's a big portion of the country where natural gas is going to be around for a while. And I think our option is just our best option is just to um, use it as well as we can. Um, so high efficiency power generation, along with the capture of the heat for the buildings, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, high states actually building a oh, it's like a hundred ten megawatt um, combined heat and power plant because they did this calculus wow. and they saw that um, yeah, the biggest expense is heating the buildings. Um, and, and, you know, it's a university, so the big energy consumption is during the school year, which happens to be in the wintertime. We need heat and we need power, um, and the sun's <laughs> not shining. <laughs> Very interesting. I, I know you've worked a lot with um, building sustainability. I'm just kind of curious, what does that term mean to you, and what solid advancements do you see being made in terms of construction sustainability? Yeah, so uh, that definition of that word is usually pretty nebulous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people consider it to mean that we can keep doing what we're doing in perpetuity um, without running out of resources and without um, kind of harming ourselves. So um, that's kind of uh, usually captures kind of an all above um, approach. So again, we we often have these competing. Um, interests. We talked about the energy and air quality interests. There might be something along the lines of um, economic interest versus, you know, um, w- wanting to generate renewable energy, for example. Um, if we had all the money in the world, we could do that, um, but that's not the case. So it's just a matter of um, uh, doing things right, I guess. Um, not taking shortcuts and things like that. Um, as far as sustainable building practices for homes, again, the best thing we can do is to reduce the amount of energy that that is needed at the homes. Um, uh, the, there's the case for, for creating energy at, at your home is pretty weak at this point. If you have not already um, tightened everything up to the point that it's one of the more efficient homes in the country, right? So energy efficiency is always the 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 first um, the the low hanging fruit that we should attack first, and it's a big part of the sustainability drive in general. Interesting. Well, I I know um I, I took note that you had worked at Lawrence Berkeley and also the National Renewable Energy Lab. Um, it's been a few years, but at one time I had worked some with uh, I believe it was Dr. Akbari at Lawrence Berkeley and some others on research being done into the energy efficiency of roofing materials. Um, just kind of curious, what areas did you work in uh, at the two national labs, and do you see any impact um, of what you were working on, uh, you know, happening today? Yeah. So at LBNL, uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, um, I was focused on this smart ventilation concept. So the the pioneers of that concept were Max Sherman and Ian Walker. Max was one of the kind of original gangsters in our field. 
he wrote a PhD thesis about, let's say, about close to 40 years ago, I guess, um, where he was just looking at what, what, what would constitute like a, a reasonable kind of science-based way to ventilate our buildings. That's what, that's how new the science was that, that, that long ago. Um, he's still very active. Um, so the smart ventilation concept is the idea that, um, in commercial buildings right now and, and, and soon to be in, in residential residences as well, we're just kind of dumping air and um, we don't really know, um, we're not measuring air quality in real time and we don't know the effect on the occupants. We just know that if, if we provide about this much of air, people aren't gonna complain, they're not gonna come down with these sick building syndrome symptoms, et cetera. Um, so the idea is we could do that a little bit uh, in a more s smartly, if you if you will, um, and that involves it can involve things like knowing that people are there. That's the, kind of the the low hanging fruit, but it could go all the way up to measuring individual airborne pollutants with these low cost sensors, and then optimizing a control strategy for your ventilation system and air cleaning system around that. So I've continued to do a lot of, of work on that, both on the hardware side where we're looking at hardware needs for reliably measuring the, the pollutants of concern in indoor environments. And then also on the software side, we can integrate some machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence to predict when, you know, high concentration events are gonna happen. We can predict when um, people are gonna be happy or not happy based on um, not just uh, pollutant concentrations, but also the interaction of that with all the thermal variables, temperature, humidity, outdoor temperature, the amount of light, Etc., and um, do things in a smarter way, and hopefully we can save energy at the same time that we're um, providing a better environment for people to live and work in. Hmm. That's uh, interesting. Hearing the the OG was only forty years ago, and he's still around. So that that's pretty cool. Uh, having a conversation about something so new and and on the leading edge. But uh, I thought of this question earlier. I'm glad we kind of circled back. Uh, this idea of indoor air quality and sick building syndrome. In your experience, have you uh, have business owners, business leaders uh, on the adoption side of these new technologies? Have they been quick to understand the impact of uh, how the improving the indoor air quality impacts the productivity and profitability of their business, or have they um, been slow to change and adapt themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. So. This has largely been confined to the world of academia, national labs, indoor air quality research. Um, we, we've been doing a lot of, you know, figuring out what's going on in the last 20, 30 years. Um, I think COVID was the impetus that was needed to get this into the, the, the market. Um, monetizing this is a challenge, especially before COVID, people didn't, um, both residential homeowners and and commercial building owners didn't see the necessarily see the motivation for changing anything. Their main concerns are: um, is is somebody complaining? Uh, nobody's complaining. Okay, we're good. Or if you're a homeowner, you you want things that are going to last, that aren't going to break, that aren't going to cost you a lot of money, sort of thing. Um, a lot of not too many people think about their indoor air quality. I think that's changing for sure because of some of the awareness that you know researchers that have brought to it but also um COVID and then also the the um energy efficiency concerns that are causing us to tighten our buildings up are going to drive more people to think about well if there's no air getting in and out of our buildings like what's that mean for for what we're breathing and things like that um there 
there there is a lot of evidence, however, that um, there there is a financial benefit to be had from improving your indoor environments. Consistently, we see that the, the, there's been a bunch of experiments where they either give children tests or they give workers some quantifiable task to do, like um, I, don't, I don't know, counting things or something like that, and how how many can they do in an hour, and it seems to max out at about a 5% improvement. If you, if you change the ventilation rate, um, you get diminishing returns after a while, but it max out about a 5% improvement in productivity. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, you know, business owners who would love to get 5% more out of their, their workers. And then it's just the cost benefit analysis for bringing in more air um, versus getting the, the extra 5% out of your employees. And again, we're trying to get to the point where we can do both, right? Just through smarter control. Sure. Yeah, five percent is huge. Yeah, Pretty dramatic. I, I'm, are there any particular areas you'd like to see changes in building codes or ASHRAE standards in the future, or anything that you're really passionate about? Yeah, building codes are a big issue. Um, I think it's coming. Um, like I said, California often paves the way for the rest of the country. Um, the one example I gave that the 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 worst home you can build is a net zero ready home. That was just one part of the bigger initiative over there that I think, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but the commercial buildings, I think they're saying something like, I don't know, 50% reduction by 2030 or something like that. So it's coming. Um, I'm a little bit ambivalent about the kind of top down approach, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's always unforeseen consequences. Yeah. Um, You're going to affect things that you, that you weren't thinking about. Um, the better approach is, is just doing things where, that are obviously a win-win-win for everyone. So coming up with a, a way to provide, you know, for better homes that are more comfortable um, and healthier, also more energy efficient that, that people are kind of like to live in. And then those things will kind of sell themselves. Um, yeah, that's building codes, big issue. Interesting. Um, as you look at your students, I know you work with some doctoral students and things. Any particular areas of study or projects you see being done, taken on by students today that you think are real exciting? Yeah, so the students that are coming through right now, um, probably different, I guess, than students 20 years ago. Just about all of them are very um, excited about changing the world, um, doing the right thing, being part of a um, little revolution we see happening um, in the re- regards to energy and sustainability and things like that. Um, a lot of people are interested in, in political science and, 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 and confluence of political science and um, kind of more technical disciplines. I don't think that was probably the case maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, Students are very interested in the, all the sustainability initiatives. Um, yeah, so, so the twenty-year-old today, you know, they want to improve their world. Um, maybe twenty, thirty years ago, people wanted to make money. I, I was certainly one of those. But uh, um, yeah, they, they're concerned about their their you know environment and, and the sustainability of their societies and things. 
I, I certainly see that too in, in younger folks, a lot more um, concerns for society and, and overall things. And uh, you're right. We were, when I was growing up and I, I have a number of years on you, but you know, it was more about how do I get out in the world and start earning a living uh, was kind of the driving thing. So if you were to, to, you know, stepping back from your own students, you think about someone in their 20s um, getting involved in, uh, let's say, the hands-on aspects of construction, perhaps as builders or remodelers. Um, any advice you'd give to them for them to make sure that they're kind of on the, the front edge of things and they um, are going into areas of opportunity? Yeah, I just say just like with everything, anything, I mean, do what you do as well as you can. And I think the opportunities will kind of present themselves. Um, I don't think it's a matter necessarily of, uh, of chasing down what, what area is hot right now and, and trying to get into that, but mm. whatever you find yourself doing, do that as well as you can. I have certainly met people who started out as, you, you know, um, contractors for, for duct work and then, climb their way up through now have PhDs and they're doing, um, you know, cutting edge research and HVAC and things like that. Um, so just, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing and do it as well as possible. And I think things will open up. That's good advice. Um, curious besides yourself and, and maybe other colleagues at Ohio state, who are some of the thought leaders in building science today that you think we ought to be paying attention to? Yep. So there's six or eight, um, university groups that are focused on um, building science. Um, I don't know if I want to tout the competition on on the radio, but um, yeah, there's a good, the good group at Purdue right now. There's a good group at, at Berkeley. There's a good group in uh, Texas A&M. And then the program I'm from at University of Texas, uh, University of Colorado is really good at this. Um, and then there's a lot of good work coming out of the national labs. I was part of the commercial building group at National Renewable Energy Lab. They're doing a lot on, they're, they're leading the software development. That's a, that's a big thing. Um, we're, we're doing a lot of energy modeling before okay. for commercial buildings mainly. Um, the software is about getting to the point where it's, it's usable enough by, you know, an average person with an engineering bachelor's, let's say. You don't, um, you don't have to have written the software yourself in order to be able to use it, um, that we can start modeling um, a bunch of different options, design options before we um, actually do construction on commercial buildings. So NREL is leading that charge. Uh, LBNL is a part of that as well. Um, those are the two big centers, I would say. There's, there's a few other things going on, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and a few other places. But yeah, I'd say those are the big kind of kind of centers of the building science world right now interesting a lot of brilliant people working on important questions i'm curious what is the success right now and uh how do the prospects look what are the challenges about bringing these lab advancements to commercialization and adoption and funding and uh production all of those mm -hmm. other factors that come into play yeah so I work mainly in the HVAC industry, um, and it's kind of a notoriously extremely slow moving industry, right? So basic vapor compression, air conditioning is a technology that was invented over a hundred years ago, and it's what we're still using for the most part. 
there have been some changes where we've made that a little bit, you know, incremental improvements, but it's an extremely slow moving industry. Um, there, there have been successes, um, uh, things like dedicated outdoor air systems. We're, we're kind of separating um, the dehumidification problem from the air quality control problem from the thermal conditioning problem. That's something that came out of Penn State maybe 20 or so years ago, and it just slowly made its way, and it's almost um, the uh, kind of uh, go-to uh, HVAC strategy for most commercial buildings now. Um, this variable refrigerant flow, that's a big innovation where we're not, we're not pumping air around our buildings necessarily anymore. We're pumping refrigerant, so you need less duct work and things like that. Um, and you can also do tighter control on the temperature of the refrigerant and then get some efficiency from reducing the, the condenser temperature and things like that. Um, that's a big innovation that, again, took 20 or so years ago. It's mostly out of Japan where that was coming. Um, but, yeah, so these things take time. Um, I'm trying, I don't remember what your original question was now. Something about the pace of adoption of new technologies and things. Yeah, the smart ventilation stuff that we're working on, um, if people are starting to put sensors in their homes and things now, you may have a little air quality sensor in your home right now. Um, the point at which most buildings are, are, are under smart control, it's gonna be a while, um, matter of decades probably. Uh, and you always have the problem where um, unlike other industries, you, you, you're not going to get it. You might get a new cell phone every couple of years, right? But your building's going to be around for 50 or 100. So, and very few people are willing to dump a bunch of money into their existing home or commercial building to, to bring it up to the state of the art. They wait until they're going to build a new building, right? Sure. So, yep. Interesting. I'm curious. I mean, this is been really interesting. I think for our listeners in particular, um, you know, I loved your advice to, to younger folks, you know, find what you enjoy doing and doing it, stay current, you know, keep up with things, but, but, you know, go where your passion drives you. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, anything else we haven't covered today that, that you'd like to share? I can't think of anything. Um, yeah, I've had fun talking. Um, yeah, it's good to, to, talk with people who are out in the world doing things and not just in the ivory tower with me. So <laughs> good. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, tell me why, why might anyone want to contact uh, or connect with you, Dr. Clark? And if they wanted to, how could they go about doing that? Yeah, I'm always eager to collaborate with people, especially builders and, um, you know, building owners who, you know, want to push the envelope a little bit. We're always looking for, test sites to, to try things out, um, especially if you're interested in the smart control or yeah, smart air quality control. Um, and if you want to contact me, my email is clarkclark.1217 at osu.edu. Uh, my, my research website is the letter u.osu.edu slash clark.1217, u.osu.edu slash clark.1217. Great. 
Well, thank you again so much for spending this time with you. We sure appreciate it, and we uh, really appreciate also our listeners out there tuning into Construction Disruption. Um, I really think you've given us some great insights uh, to go forward on what's going to be driving uh, construction in the future and some things that I think most of us don't think about every day. So thank you very much for for being with us and, and sharing that with us. Yep, thanks for having me. Well, I think I was quite interesting talking to uh, Dr. Clark, and I guess one of the things that kind of really hit home with me um, was, you know, the amount of research and effort being put into air quality and these things. Um, I mean, I knew it was a concern, and every once in a while you hear of sick building syndrome. Every once in a while you hear of a bunch of people gathering together and getting sick, and certainly covid you know, did bring that to the forefront where you started seeing these demos of restaurants and air exchange units and, you know, people getting sick from ventilation. Um, but I guess I just never realized there was that much going into it. Um, and yet at the same time, his comment about how slow that industry, and I think that, I think that's been our experience with all construction. Um, you know, that's, that seems to be a real limiting factor in change and in, in making things better, how slow that is. Yeah, I thought that, that was really interesting. And my question about sick building syndrome, you know, when I asked it, my my uh, reference for it was I assume he was going to start talking about mold was growing on in the inside of walls and, you know, buildings were breaking down and failing at a more rapid rate. I wasn't thinking about literally the humans in the building getting sick and, um, you know, heard some about that, but that how prevalent it actually was. Um, and then that still, that was back in the eighties. We're seeing that we're still slow to adopt. We're still on this 20 year pace of adopting new technologies when you know, we're looking at our uh, P and L's and balance sheets and trying to carve out quarter percents here and there for profitability. When there's, there's technology here that, you know, he had eight to 10 institutions, universities that are cranking right. out new options to improve at 5% levels. That's huge. Uh, so what are what are the barriers to getting that rolled out at a much more rapid rate moving forward? I guess on you know and, and I think of the barriers, but then I also think for someone young and getting started and you know, there's so much ability now that didn't exist when I was coming up um, to go out and learn what those hot topics are and what those things are that potentially could really be some significant incremental change. And out of that is where the opportunity comes. As you know, we talked about, uh, he and I kind of joked about how when we were coming out of college, it was all about getting a job and making money. And yet the opportunities are still there. And, and certainly you can be doing serving both masters, if we will. I mean, you can be doing things that are good for society and good for buildings and good for health and good for uh, individuals. Um, but yet there's still opportunities in there to make money also. And I think that's kind of exciting for folks that really want to dig into this and say, gee whiz, where can I commercialize things? Where can I monetize things and, and really take advantage of um, the technology and where that's leading? Absolutely. The people diving into it, the current and up and coming generation, opportunity to do well financially, this deep ethos to change the world, plus the perspective that, yeah, they do get a new phone every two years. Why are we messing around for a lot longer than that to start implementing these things? And 
hopefully mm. wow. those three things together create a, a driver machine moving forward. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Uh, this has just been, a, I think, a really interesting episode of Construction Disruption that I hope our, our listeners enjoy. And uh, hopefully we can all walk away a little bit inspired um, with, you know, finding those areas where we can serve two purposes, push things forward, make things better, and, you know, at the same time, find some, some economic vital- vitality in it all as well. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. And I encourage our listeners, um, please watch for future episodes of our podcast. Um, We have more uh, great guests on tap in coming weeks. Um, Until then, I encourage everyone, change the world for someone, make them smile, bring them encouragement, bring them hope. Those are all some of the most powerful things that we can do uh, to go out there and change the world uh, one interaction with someone else at a time. Um, So again, thank you so much, Dr. Clark. God bless everyone. Take care. And this is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption.